Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert in myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about organ transplantation with Dr. Sanjay Kulkarni. Dr. Kulkarni is Associate Professor of Surgery, Transplant, and of Medicine, Nephrology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. Sanjay, let's start by talking about organ transplantation. I know that this is a show called Yale Cancer Center Answers, but let's start with the basics of transplantation. How many people in this country get transplants? How many need transplants? And what are some of the big problems in terms of making sure that we're meeting those needs? You probably hit the most important question first because uh, we really think we're in a public health crisis as far as people needing both kidney, liver, and heart transplants. And it really comes to the fact that our lists are burgeoning with people as over 120,000 people in the country are waiting for organ transplantation. And only 10% of them get transplanted every single year. So these lists are continuing to increase. People are continuing to die on these waiting lists. So it's critical that we really find a solution to the organ shortage problem. So just right off the top, how do people become organ donors? I mean, what can you do if you want to help this crisis? Well, there's two types of organ donors. There's what we call deceased donors. And these are, you know, unfortunate people who are uh, hospitalized, brain dead. They actually may not be brain dead in certain circumstances or have no chance of neurological recovery. And their families are approached uh, to consent for them to donate. Now, I don't know if you know this, but you know Connecticut has historically been one of the poorer states in the country as far as uh, the number of deceased donors available for transplant. There's multiple factors for that, but uh, we continue to really uh, suffer from an organ transplant perspective on the number of organs available for transplant. And on the other side, there's, of course, living donors. And these are individuals um, that are just remarkable people. I mean, I, I'm a primarily a living donor surgeon, and I do most of the uh, living donor kidney procurements at Yale. And it is just an honor, really, um, meeting these people because they're unique individuals. And these people come forward. They may come forward to be a directed donor. So let's say I want to donate to you, or they sometimes come and say, you know, I just want to help, and I don't really care who the kidney goes to, and those are called altruistic donors. So the simple answer to your question is there's deceased donors, and then there's living donors, and at Yale, we're really trying to emphasize um, to be a program more geared towards living donation given the healthcare crisis. And even on the deceased donor side, I mean, I would think that it's not that difficult to, you know, sign your driver's license, um, tell your family that that's your your wish. 
because uh, because if it if it's something that you want after you pass to be able to help other people, you need to tell somebody that that's what you want. That's so important because yes, you should sign your driver's license. But during that process, you really want your family members to know what your wishes are. Uh, and that makes it a lot less complex because ultimately, the family members are there and they're going to be approached and they're going to get consented for that organ procurement. And in spite of you know, signing that uh, license, to, for your family to comprehend your true feelings is imperative to making this process work. All right. So I just wanted to kind of lay that groundwork right at the top, um, because this is a show on, on organ transplantation, but it's also a show called Yale Cancer Center Answers. So tell me a little bit more about the connection between organ transplantation and cancer. Many people feel that if you have cancer, you're not eligible for a transplant. So why are we talking about this? You know, the two are actually very close and very interrelated. And um, there are several examples, but I think the, the most prominent example is in liver transplantation. So patients who suffer from end-stage liver disease, um, some of them do develop small cancers. And the way that liver transplantation works is that the sicker you are, uh, that's based on something called a MELD score, uh, the higher priority you get uh, to get an organ. So the people who tend not to be so sick on their liver disease, um, it's unfortunate, but they end up going on the back of the line, and the sickest people get um, the transplants first. Interestingly, there's an exception for people with liver cancer. So if your liver cancer meets a specific criteria, and that criteria is usually based on imaging or a CAT scan and so forth, uh, then you can get special priority in um, the United States and particularly our region where you would get elevated on the list so your probability of getting a liver transplant increases. And we interface very closely with the Smile Cancer Center on this. There's a multidisciplinary meeting where transplant uh, surgeons, uh, surgical oncologists, a radiologist, our medical oncologists, all interface to discuss these cases and to determine what's the most appropriate therapy for these patients. So what are their choices? Well, it depends on the size and the advancement of the disease, and uh, the choices go from being placed on the transplant list to local therapy that our radiologists perform, uh, something called radiofrequency ablation or chemoembolization. There's certainly chemotherapy um, that can be provided, and then surgical resection. And so can people have multiple things at once? So for example, you try your, your, your best at chemoablation or resection uh, while you're on the transplant list, because if the stats that you gave us at the top of the show are true, such that only 10% of people actually get a, the organ that they need in any given year. Um, boy, you'd better be doing something about your cancer while you're waiting. That is absolutely true, and that's why we have that meeting. Uh, because many of these patients, even if they're on the list, you know, they have cancer that needs to be treated. Um, so we make a decision amongst all of us. What's the appropriate therapy? And the therapy can be staged. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, there are even instances where somebody may undergo a surgical resection 
and then down the road still need a transplant. And um, and it's so important for the pro professionals in our field to discuss each patient individually at this multidisciplinary meeting and develop a comprehensive treatment plan because you're right, it is complex. You know, one of the things, Sanjay, that I think was intriguing uh, that you mentioned, and I, I want to ask you this because I, I think that some of our listeners may be intrigued by this as well, is that you said that some liver cancer patients get priority. Now, some people, uh, and may perhaps some of our listeners who uh, may sadly be on a liver transplant list, may be wondering, why is it that cancer patients get priority? I mean, if you've got cancer and that cancer has the potential to metastasize and your life expectancy may be um, determined in part by that cancer, why would you get priority over somebody who has liver disease that is not malignant? So it's all evidence-based, and it's all based on uh, clinical studies on patients who were randomized to different treatments. And the patients with liver cancer I'm talking about, the liver cancer tends to be a very early stage. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tend to be advanced. And uh, we go through great strides to assure that that's not the case. And even during the transplant, uh, we make an assessment clinically in the operation to make sure that that patient has a very early stage cancer. And in the event that it's it's beyond that stage, we won't proceed with the transplant. So a lot of these uh, clinical studies, uh, the major one, which was primarily uh, from Italy a while back, uh, established something called the Milan criteria. And these patients did better with transplant than other forms of treatment. Hmm. So, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, deceased donors and living donors. And you made the comment that Yale uh, was particularly interested in developing a living donor program. Why is that? Well, uh, we view the status of patients with chronic kidney disease and chronic liver disease as a public health crisis. And I think uh, the United States should think of it that way as well. And over the past two decades, the number of deceased donors simply hasn't improved. And it's not for lack of trying. <laughs> There's a fair amount of education involved, outreach, people are working very, very hard and committed to increasing organ donation. But you have to also look at our demographics. Our country's getting older. Um, the And patients who are older tend to have more you know, comorbidities. And so many of these organs uh, you can still transplant them, but they tend to be suboptimal, particularly when you're comparing them to a living donor. Mm -hmm. So uh, given the fact that we have so many patients on our list, we feel really compelled as essentially a fiduciary responsibility to our patients to find methods uh, to save their lives. And it just happens that at Yale, we have a lot of experience with living donation. Um, we have... Uh, if you look at the number of surgeons we have and the number of cases they've done um, for both kidney procurement and liver procurement, they're in the top three in the country. So we certainly have the resources to do it. Uh, we just want to develop a comprehensive program to implement it and get the word out. So is, is living donation really primarily liver and kidney? Because I would think that you can't really be a living donor of a heart. Um, 
It's primarily uh, kidney and liver. Uh, there are uh, cases of uh, living donor lung transplants where uh, a segment of the lung has been taken. They have done living donor pancreas transplants. Uh, again, extremely rare, uh, not done very often at all. And there's actually been cases of living donor intestinal transplants. Wow. So the latter three are extremely rare, but predominantly in the United States we do, we concentrate on living donor kidney and living donor liver transplants. So tell us a little bit more about each of those two. So living donor kidney, um, most of our listeners would understand how that works. You've got two kidneys, you give one to somebody else. What about your liver? Well, you only have one liver, but fortunately the liver regenerates. And I think it's important to make the comment for both kidney and for liver donation. Just because somebody wants to be a donor doesn't mean that they automatically can be. The uh, evaluation is very extensive for both kidney donors and even more so for living donors. So we have to have strict assurances that uh, if we take a portion of their liver or we take a portion of their kidney, that long-term, they're gonna be able to lead the same type of life as they did prior to donation. And that's really what our aim is. So tell us more about that, um, because certainly it's an intriguing possibility. Um, what is donation like? What is that process? How do you, A, get involved? B, what is the evaluation like? C, what is the procedure itself? Um, and D, what are your long-term outcomes? I mean, you've kind of spoken to the last point, but what about the first three? Because I can see how some people may be uh, intimidated uh, to get involved in this process, albeit for altruistic purposes. Yeah, so I think it's important to understand that if you're interested in being an organ donor, what we emphasize is education more than anything else. And, and that's why the process is uh, extensive. So when people are interested, the first thing we do is we bring them in um, and we talk to them so they understand exactly what they're getting into. And, it, and what we emphasize to donors is that they shouldn't feel any pressure, that they can back out at any time, that this is meant to be a very comfortable process for them. And at the end of it, they should feel rewarded and they should feel gratitude and they, it should not limit their lives in any way. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about living donation and how this can really make a big difference to cancer survivors after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information with my guest, Dr. Sanjay Kalkarni. This year, over 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Sanjay Kalkarni. We're talking about organ transplantation. Now, right before the break, Sanjay, you were talking about how people get involved, um, how they can become living donors, um, the process of education, the process of knowing what to expect. What if you have cancer? Uh, can you still donate a kidney? Can you still donate part of your liver? Or are your chances for any kind of altruistic donation done? That's a really intriguing question. And I'm going to say it's very intriguing because there are there's a shift that's occurring in healthcare in the United States where there are more opportunities for people with cancer to become potential donors. But in general, the answer is no. Uh, typically, again, if you're going to side by the welfare of the person donating, you don't want to remove any portion of a vital organ because down the road, that cancer may be causing greater difficulties. So in general, 99% of the time, the answer is no, you can't be a donor. Um, interestingly enough, um, there is a new field in transplantation. is something called therapeutic donors. And this has really been spurred on, again, by the healthcare crisis. We are trying to find ways to provide transplants to people in need. And one of the important things that's really come to fruition, it's always known, we've always known that kidney uh, recipients or recipients of living donor kidneys do better than recipients of deceased donor kidneys. But in this year, we've also recognized that recipients of living donor livers do actually better than recipients of live deceased donor uh, livers. So getting back to the therapeutic uh, um, donation topic. So what, what some centers are doing is, let's say you have a small cancer on your kidney, and you may need that removed by removing the whole kidney, or you may uh, just need a portion of that kidney removed. Well, what people are doing is approaching these people and asking them, would you be willing, as a process of getting treatment for the cancer, also being a donor? So we would remove the kidney with the cancer, we would remove the cancer after the kidney's been removed, and then implant that as a transplant. So this field is just emerging. It's really in its infancy. We really need to have strong ethical debate and, and a strong consensus as a community whether um, this is options for potential people. But yeah, I think in the future you're going to find that more people with cancers are actually going to be donors. So it's interesting, right, this whole concept of therapeutic donors, because potentially if you could just take out that portion of the kidney that has the tumor in it instead of the whole kidney, then couldn't the donor have a smaller operation than removing the whole kidney? That They could, uh, and that's where informed consent really comes into play. Yeah. And that's why we really need to have a strong ethical debate on, on uh, how we're gonna approach this as a society. Um, you know, there are some tumors just simply based on their location uh, on a kidney that uh, they may be, again, small enough that it's safe to transplant, but in a location where removal of the whole kidney is required. Yeah, you'd wonder though if you were the donor whether you'd want a cancerous kidney. Well, so in, a lot of studies in Japan have looked at that, and uh, and we have a fair amount of experience with that as well. As long as the uh, cancers are very small, and as long as they're localized, removing them is essentially curative. 
And what you're looking at is you're looking at potentially getting a living donor kidney with a very, very small risk of developing cancer long-term versus staying on the waiting list yeah. uh, with the predicted mortality every single year and a five to six year waiting time. So it's really prompted by the public health crisis that we're faced. It's really prompted by the number of people waiting organ transplantation to, again, try to find new and innovative ways to provide life-saving treatments for these people. Yeah. And I guess the last question on this whole therapeutic transplantation thing is, if you if you get a transplant, you need to have immunosuppression, right? Correct. Well, wouldn't immunosuppression increase your risk of a cancer going awry? Um, it actually does increase your risk of certain cancers. And, you know, before one of the things we need to realize about immune suppression is immune suppression has really revolutionized transplant. And the immune suppression that we use nowadays is, is quite different than uh, transplantation in the 80s and 90s. It, the dosage is far less. The overall immunosuppressive load is far less. The steroids are far more reduced. So we've gotten pretty good at modifying immune suppression and personalizing it to a particular person. Um, as far as cancer risk, if you look at people who are transplant patients who are on immune suppression and you compare them to people in the general population, it is true that they do have a higher risk of cancer. They typically are head and neck cancers or certain virally mediated cancers that uh, they're at the highest risk for. Now, again, it's all about weighing risks. Yes, I potentially could have a slightly higher risk of developing a, a kidney cancer from a kidney that's been removed where the cancer has been excised. But on the other hand, you know, I'm going to wait six years, and the faster I get transplanted, I know I'm going to have better results. As long as the, the surveillance is there afterwards, I think it's actually very safe to do. One thing that tweaked uh, a question for me, when you talked about um, the increased risk being virally mediated cancers, uh, head and neck cancers and other cancers in large part uh, in transplant recipients, what if people had had an HPV vaccine prior to being transplanted and being immunosuppressed? Do those people have a lower risk than if they would never have been vaccinated? Wow, that's a great question. And uh, to my knowledge, there is no clinical study. But uh, that, that, that's something we should definitely investigate. Another reason to think about vaccination. Okay, yeah. uh, off of the soapbox, tell me about some of the research that's ongoing. I mean, there's a lot of great innovative studies, I'm sure, going on in the transplant field. Oh, there really is. And, uh, you know, at Yale, we've really uh, concentrated on living donors again because we want to really get the word out and develop a comprehensive program uh, where living donors get cutting-edge treatments. And the only way to be cutting-edge is to be involved in research. Uh, one of the things that I think we've really been on the forefront on is developing more donor-centered approaches. And if I can elaborate on that a little bit, the Institute of Medicine um, – came out with a recommendation that uh, the practice of medicine should be more focused towards patient-centered models, really involving patients in understanding what their motivations are, understanding the different elements of life and how that, how for them certain treatments may be advantageous versus others. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to apply that same models to living donors. And to my understanding, um, we're the only center that's currently doing this. So when 
there's some medical uncertainty. For example, the risk of developing kidney disease long-term if you have hypertension, for say. What we're trying to do is develop a systematic way of involving donors in the decision-making process. And I think the only way we can you know, justifiably do that is to pair that with very comprehensive long-term donor follow-up to make sure that donors aren't getting uh, hurt um, when they may be taking a slightly incremental risk based on their motivations. And I think a, a really good example of something like this is um, uh, parents giving to children or you know, other instances where the bond is very, very tight, uh, where you know, uh, elderly wife is giving to her husband so they can travel they can do things, uh, and uh, you know, many of these instances, we do consider motivations, but we haven't really formalized it. So we're doing a fair amount of research uh, and trying to develop new models of donor care. Hmm. So that sounds like it's um, it's more uh, a clinical kind of programmatic a- advance. What about other clinical trials, for example? Are there new cutting-edge things on, on the horizon in terms of uh, certain immunosuppressants or certain surgical techniques or certain uh, things that make it more possible to either donate or receive? Yeah, so there's a couple of things I can, I can think about. On the liver side, um, the medical director of our liver transplant program, Dr. Shilsky, is working with uh, Dr. Israel in radiology to develop expedited ways to determine whether certain um, people who want to donate uh, are suitable and to try to make that decision very, very quickly, mm-hmm. efficient, efficiently, and cost-effective. Uh, on the kidney transplant side, we're about to complete a... Uh, randomized clinical trial on a, um, a device by a local company called Surgiquest. And what they've done, uh, it's actually right here in Milford, what they've done is they've developed a way um, to finally regulate the pressure that we have to use in the abdomen. All laparoscopic surgery requires to add air so you can actually see. And what this uh, newer device, which is called AirSeal, does is that it uh, finally regulates the pressure so you can use less of it. And what our hypothesis in the clinical study is, by using less pressure, can we somehow improve comfort afterwards? Hmm. Maybe somehow the two are related. Hmm. And um, and maybe patients uh, will use less pain medication. So that, that's exactly what our primary outcome is. It's, it's the narcotic use afterwards. And I hope to have an answer by uh, another month or so when we complete the study. So, so that's very cool. Um, how much transplant surgery is done laparoscopically? I mean, most of us, at least I, uh, always thought about transplant surgery being this massive operation with a huge incision. Um, is it not that way anymore? No, donors in particular, so we do 100% of our kidney donors laparoscopically. Wow. So that's really shifted over the last 10 years or so. Um, the liver donors are still done open, though, um, you know, Dr. Mulligan, who's the director of our transplant program, he is... Um, he is committed to bringing minimally invasive surgical techniques to living donors, and I fully anticipate that coming to fruition within the next 12 months. Hmm. You know, it, it's so interesting when we talk about living donors. 
I can imagine how it, it is, as you say, an elderly wife giving to her husband or parents giving to children. The, the interesting uh, other side that you, you mentioned before the break was this altruistic general population just wanting to do something incredible. How many people are out there who actually do that? So very few, but I think the reason is um, a lack of education more than anything else. And the altruistic donors, other than in addition to being just amazing individuals, I mean, can you imagine no, this I coming forward actually. saying, I'm just going to donate my kidney because I want to just help somebody. I mean, it, it really goes against a lot of skepticism we have as human beings. And again, that's why I have the best job in the world, yeah. really. I interact with these individuals, and it, it is very humbling, and it's, it, it really is the better side of human nature. But um, the altruistic donors in particular make a tremendous impact because what uh, we do nowadays is we have a computerized matching system. It was actually developed by uh, uh, a professor who won the Nobel Prize for it. And there are many people on our list who have living donors, but they can't donate to each other. Because they're not a match. They're not a match. There are different blood types. There could be other compatibility issues. So let's say, for an instance, we have four um, of those individuals. What we do with these altruistic donors is we put them into the matching algorithm to see whether they can initiate a chain. So the altruistic donor will donate to one of the recipients. In exchange for that, that donor who is not compatible donates to the next recipient on the list. And recently at Yale, we had a wonderful story um, that uh, had a fair amount of media attention where an altruistic donor uh, donated and it triggered a chain reaction and we had four people transplanted. So that one gift translated into four people getting transplanted. Interestingly enough, one of the other things was it was all wives giving to husbands, which was just a great story because you probably know that the vast majority of um, people who donate are actually women. Dr. Sanjay Kulkarni is Associate Professor of Surgery, Transplant, and of Medicine, Nephrology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.